Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Book reviewer, blogger, and now biographer Adam Hennig discusses his new book, Alex Haley's Roots, an author's odyssey. On this installment of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, arts, culture, and sciences discuss their new books. Hello, I'm Vershawn Young, your host, and I hope you stay tuned for this lively exchange with Adam Hennig. Alex Haley's 1976 book, Roots, still stands as a memorable epic journey into the history of African Americans during the enslavement period and after. The 1977 televised miniseries was a must-watch event for the day and remains an important production in television history. However, a little more than a decade later, Haley was in trouble. His wealth had dwindled, and he had strained relationships with other writers. What happened? Adam Hennick tells us in his new book, Alex Haley's Roots, an author's odyssey. Adam, can you tell us how we can get this book? Yes. So since it's exclusively being distributed as an ebook, you can um, purchase it on Amazon.com, on Apple iBooks, and Kobo Books. And uh, to make it easy, I have links on my website, which is my full name, www.adamhenighenig.com. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for sending me an advanced copy. I enjoy reading it. So before we talk about the book itself, tell us a little bit about you. Who is Adam Hennig? Well, Adam Hennig is not your traditional biographer. Most biographers, as I've experienced typically come from either academia or journalism. And my background is a little uh, unorthodox. Um, My father was, uh, or was actually, he just recently retired, a U.S. history professor. And uh, as I grew up, I ended up uh, using his office as my bedroom. And in his office, I um, I was just basically through osmosis, just indoctrinated into U.S. history. Uh, He had uh, books from uh, floor to the ceiling, um, just everywhere. And and I just became so interested in U.S. history, just, I think, like I said, through osmosis. And also, uh, as he began to write more uh, articles and books, uh, I was always there to help him out. In the beginning, it just was just making copies. Uh, And later, it was doing research at a variety of different institutions. Um, But I had always been interested in writing. I had always been interested in um, wanting to pursue a career uh, as a writer, particularly as a biographer. But there was also a pragmatic side for me, and I I didn't want to uh, be like Alex Haley when he was a struggling writer, uh, living hand-to-mouth, month-to-month. And as a result, I, I took kind of more of a traditional route uh, but I always kept writing in the background, and it was something that I would do during my free time. 
And eventually, at a, at a certain point, um, as I was continuing to kind of hone my craft, uh, doing a lot of writing but not really publishing anything, um, I finally discovered a subject that I wanted to explore, and I felt that I could complete it given my uh, limited resources. Uh, like I said, I had, a, I had another job that was completely divorced from what I wanted to pursue. And eventually, uh, of course, that was Alex Haley. I had rewatched Roots 20 years after I had first seen it. And I was curious to find out what had happened to Alex Haley. Um, I mean, this epic movie series that literally transformed the way this country, and for that matter, the world, looked at race. Uh, what had happened to the author uh, of the book that it was based on? And it was amazing how he went from being the most popular uh, writer in this country uh, within a few years to, to have almost been somewhat forgotten, uh, except within some niche circles. I want you to tell us a, 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 some more about those details in just a moment. Um, because I, this is, is, is going to be a fascinating discussion for many of our listeners who are also interested in, in Alex Haley and, um, and the book. But uh, for one more moment, I want to just get to know you just a little bit better um, because you're, in your bio on your website, it says that you went to California State University. Um, you majored in some uh, areas that uh, – pertain to your work, um, or at least in this book, I mean, you majored in political science and in cultural and international studies, but why, why African-American history and literature? Great question. Um, so every, every, every historian or history buff has a particular period that they're fascinated with. Uh, my father, of course, was a Civil War historian. Uh, anything about Lincoln, about Reconstruction, um, is basically uh, his area of expertise. Although he's very comfortable in the other fields, certainly that's his concentration. For other people uh, within U.S. history, it might be World War II. It might be the Vietnam War. Uh, it might be the colonial age. For whatever reason, and, and, I, and I certainly have some uh, knowledge, I mean, I should, obviously I do know, but I've always been fascinated with... Uh, African-American history, particularly the civil rights era. Um, I, I think a lot of it had to do um, seeing uh, the Malcolm X movie when I was, I think, 13 or 14 years old with Denzel Washington. And I, I think also just, uh, there just was something very fascinating about the 1960s, about how the, uh, with the exception of the Native Americans, there's no other group of people in this country that have been discriminated against more so. And yet, if you look at the, the scope of American history from the time when the first slaves came here to the present day, it's amazing how much African Americans have accomplished, particularly in the last 60, 70 years, uh, beginning with uh, the post-World War II, as we see the integration of armed forces, and then we go to Brown versus Board of Education, and then, of course, the Civil Rights Movement. And yet, even today, there is still this great divide. So, so much has been accomplished, and yet so little has not, in some respects. Um, but, like I said, I guess it's always been fascinated by it, and it has just naturally just became my niche, my area of, of expertise. 
Um, and by doing this research on Alex Haley, which I spent nearly five years working on, uh, I really have become very well-versed and very comfortable uh, studying this field. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's so many stories that have yet to be written about extensively that I came across while doing research. Exactly. And that's the question that I want to ask you. Um, there are any number of events or um, people or authors that you could have chosen to write about um, in your first uh, project. But why Alex Haley's roots and why Alex Haley? Um, well, primarily because Alex Haley, given his notoriety, his place in history, I was shocked to discover that there had never been a full-length biography on him. Um, and that's actually what prompted me to want to write this book, because as as a writer of, uh, or as a, as a, someone who's passionate about reading, um, particularly uh, biography and, and particularly about African Americans in the 20th century, uh, the first thing I wanted to do after having rewatched Roots was to find the biography on Alex Haley, and I was disappointed to see that there hadn't been one, uh, and not much had been written about him. Uh, in about 20 years. And, and again, it you know, goes back to, to how I, the reason why I began this project in the first place. Is I felt that his story needed to be told. It, it seemed as if there was a lot of confusion, um, and, and, there, and, and it seemed like the story wasn't really confirmed. What happened to him? Did he, did he plagiarize roots? Did he not? What's the real story? And that was really the essence, the thesis of, of this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us what's out there and how your book differs. Well, again, there isn't much out there. Uh, if you go into any bookstore, even if you just go to Amazon.com, you'll see that the only books written about, first of all, there are no books written about Alex Haley at all. There are some lengthy articles out there. Um, the last one was written in the village voice, and it was extremely controversial. Um, and it really put, as I, as I uh, cited in my book, the final nail in Alex Haley's coffin. It was, it was quite um, destructive to his legacy. But there are no books written about him. And again, I originally wanted to write a full-length uh, biography from the, from the from his first years uh, all the way to his final years, but because of my limited time, uh, I, I, I realized midway through that that was not going to be possible. So I, I had to be realistic and focus on a particular period in his life that I also felt most people were uh, familiar with, and that, of course, is roots. And so what would you like for the um, audience to know about the, the theme and the structure of your book in particular? Well, in the, in the new age of publishing, because publishing is going through a massive transformation where uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, all of the power laid in the publisher as well as the agents. Uh, commonly referred to as the gatekeepers. That is no longer the case. Uh, a, lar- a part of it has to do, of course, with just the Internet uh, and web publishing. 
but more of it has to do with actually one company, and that is Amazon.com. Although I love patronizing my local bookstores, I have to say that Amazon.com has done more for me as a writer uh, and for thousands of other writers than any bookstore will ever do. Um, and the new trend in reading uh, uh, is obviously e-readers, uh, and we see them on iPad devices. We see them uh, on the Nook, on the Amazon Kindle. Uh, what is becoming more and more popular, and again, Amazon is the pioneer uh, in this new method, is what's called the quick read or the Kindle single uh, it's sometimes referred to as micro-publishing. And basically, it is the kind of a shortened book, but it's longer than an article. So if you were to read an article, for example, in the New York Times magazine, typically it could go up to 5,000, maybe 7,000 words. What Amazon discovered is that many readers want to read something, uh, preferably in one to two sittings. And what they've come up with is this Amazon Kindle single program, which my book is not in, involved in, but it's certainly somewhat uh, replicating that type of structure. And basically, it's between five and 30,000 words, and they typically sell from anywhere from 99 cents to 4.99. So mm -hmm. It's very affordable. It's become very popular. The program itself has sold over 2 million copies, uh, and you've got... Uh, writers as well known as Stephen King's to a lot of new writers uh, who have very, very little credit. So it's opened up a lot of doors. Uh, Barnes & Noble has a similar program. Apple has a similar program. Uh, but you're also starting to see individuals like myself, uh, uh, indie writers or self-published writers, who are also writing these type of mini-books. Uh, again, most biographies, or traditionally, they usually start at about 100,000 words. Mine is a little over 15,000 words, so it can easily be read in, in probably right under two hours or so. Mm -hmm. I want to return to this uh, conversation about publishing venue uh, and your book and scholarly articles, et cetera, in just a moment. But I want to switch gears for now and um, tell you that I'm one of those. I, I grew up in the late 70s, 80s, and I remember my mother when the rerun of, of Roots was coming on, the, the miniseries was being aired again after its uh, 1977 debut making my siblings and I watch the miniseries, which we loved. I mean, it wasn't forced. I mean, we we wanted to watch it. Um, and we were enthralled for, you know, almost a week as this miniseries went on. And each time that that Roots came on subsequently, we were right there in front of the television um, watching it. And it has maintained a iconic status in uh, my family's um, life as well as in other African-Americans um, lives as well. I mean, Roots is a is is a household um, household word and people remember it and um, embrace it. So I'm, I'm telling you that anecdote to ask a question about what your book does for readers like me or like my mother, like my siblings or other others, particularly African-Americans who are very familiar with Rutu, um, 
uh, Fine Roots to be one of those books that are uh, uh, that is a essential reading, the television miniseries, a, a essential viewing for understanding African-American life and culture, uh, even today. What is your what does your book provide for us? Well, what makes a great story is to bring the reader back into that particular moment when the event occurred. And what I do, and I do this immediately, is I put the reader back into what, the first night of when Roots aired. And I try to re- recreate that moment before the internet, before cable television, when there were only five or seven stations um, and there was no such thing as social media. I mean, it was a different era. And it's, and in some respects, we, we often use the word viral, that things go viral. I don't think anything will ever be as viral again as something like Roots because there were just so few other options that people had 40 years ago. And Roots went viral in ways that we will probably never experience as a nation again. It's, it's just, there's too many distractions for us to all be sitting in front of the television for eight straight nights. Uh, literally, t- two out of every three Americans were watching Roots, black, white, uh, Asian, Hispanic, uh, Jewish, Catholic. It didn't matter. Everyone was in front of the television. And so I try to recreate that, that, that feeling, that camaraderie. Um, and then I explained the impact that this, that this movie had. All of a sudden, uh, libraries, research institutions were being bombarded by uh, dozens, scores, hundreds of people wanting to find out about their ancestry. Because prior to Ruth, for the most part, the only people who were doing research on their ancestry typically were very wealthy aristocrats uh, because it was very expensive and most people just didn't have much of an interest or the time or the resources. And all of a sudden, Roots opened the floodgates. I mean, if there's one thing, and, they did, and Roots provided many, many, uh, had many, many impacts, but if there is one uh, overarching impact that Roots transformed, and that was, of course, the genealogy industry. I mean, from literally overnight, within the span of a few, uh, one week, uh, it went from being a, uh, a novelty to uh, a full a on industry uh, to where uh, people were, were, were creating businesses just off this, this very niche industry prior. Uh, does, that, does that answer your question? It does. And, and, I, and I totally agree with you. I, I think that um, Roots was very influential um, in that way. Um, tell us some of the controversy that your book reveals about Alex Haley. Well, the 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 most the most um, poignant is is probably of course the debate over whether or not he wrote the book, and if so, what parts of the book uh, are flagged? What parts of the books uh, did he uh, indulge in or engage in plagiarism? Um, now, for those those readers who don't know, or listeners who don't know, can you rehearse some of that history about the charge of plagiarism? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I don't want to give too much away, but but basically, 
like most books that are not just bestsellers, but mega bestsellers. We saw this um, recently with uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, I believe, and, and, and other books that have really um, hit the mark. They immediate uh, even J.K. Rowling experiences, they immediately, a lot of people come out of the woodwork and accuse writers of plagiarism. So it's not a new, um, it's certainly not a new issue when, when you have these writers that reach uh, godlike status uh, to be accused of of this charge. In the case of Alex Haley, he of course was uh, given his status at the time. Um, like I mentioned, he was essentially the most popular writer uh, in the spring of 1977 in this in this country. So uh, he certainly was was equal of that status. Uh, Haley had, of course, uh, accusers, and and uh, his publisher, as well as himself, and, and many of his close associates, uh, dismissed them, and, and so did the media. No one gave them any credit, um, and a few of them were were, were dismissed. They, they weren't uh, uh, of any sort of substance, but uh, there were a couple that did come out that um, that ended up going to court. Uh, one charge was, one of them was dismissed, and that was, of course, against the novelist uh, Margaret Walker, um, who wrote Jubilee, and that mm-hmm. had been published about a decade before Roots. Very similar book, um, and she just couldn't make the case that she had actually plagiarized it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to, to be convicted of plagiarism, uh, it's quite severe because you have to have indisputable evidence. It can't just be similar themes, similar characters. I mean, you really have to prove uh, without a doubt. Uh, it's very difficult to convict on plagiarism. And there's another author who accused Haley of plagiarism. And this author had, of course, a much stronger case. And I don't want to go too much into it because we could probably spend the whole hour talking about it. Um, but it was something that Haley couldn't shake as much as he tried, um, as much as his supporters tried to fend off. In the end, it did catch up with him. And as a result, it, it really contributed to his downfall um, from the literary landscape. And, and he essentially became, afterwards, although most people aren't familiar with it, but those in the publishing industry are, uh, persona non grata. I mean, mm-hmm. There's a reason why, after Roots, Alex Haley only publishes one other book, and it's a novella. Uh, and it really was published. And of course, he published books after he was dead. Uh, but but while he was alive, between 1977 and 1992, he only published one other book. And for uh, an individual like Haley, who had uh, who's quite um, the writer, uh, it was it seemed odd that he would only write one other book, uh, you know, his argument would have been, of course, well, you know, he was on speaking tours and he just didn't have time. He did write some articles. He wrote some forwards. But I think most of it had to do with the stigma of being a plagiarist. He didn't want to, he didn't want the topic to come up again. He didn't, he certainly didn't want the scrutiny. Um, so that's obviously one area of controversy um, about Alex Haley and, and certainly the most notable there's some other uh, uh, things that came up that I discovered I certainly had no idea about. Uh, unfortunately, Alex Haley was not the best 
of husbands. <laughs> I remember reading about those in your book. Yeah, and I, I'll never forget. I within um, within a year of my research, and this goes back to I think I started in July of '09. So within about a, within less than a year, I had pretty much compiled uh, as many articles and books as I could before I was going on to doing archival research. And the place to go to uh, for archival research on Alex Haley is Knoxville, Tennessee, at the University of Tennessee. Hmm. There's a woman there by the name of Anne Romaine, who was this folk singer slash uh, writer. Um, she was a bit eccentric, but for whatever reason, her and Alex Haley became very close. At the time when they met, she was a curator at the Alex Haley Museum. And when they met, she wanted to, she offered to write his biography. And he at first said, no, you know, I'm not interested. But for whatever reason, she kept, she kept pushing him, and eventually he acquiesced to her request. And she began interviewing uh, all of his uh, friends, uh, members of his family, anyone who essentially was associated with him. And I remember sitting in the reading room uh, in Knoxville in the Special Collections uh, Department, and I'm sitting there listening to a cassette tape because it hadn't been digitized yet. I'm the person, by the way, responsible for digitizing the archival uh, interviews uh, for the Anne Romain papers because I said, sir, why are we using tapes in 2009? But in any event, um, so I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this interview, and all of a sudden, um, in the interview, it starts coming out that Alex Haley was having all of these affairs. And, you know, I have to say, I had done quite uh, a amount, I had done a, a lot of research up to this point, and it had never come up. And I was shocked. And as I start reading more interview transcripts and start listening to more interviews, I was astonished at how many affairs he had. I don't even really go into it that much in the ebook, mm -hmm. um, but I, I certainly, uh, you know, uh, provide some information, but there is, I mean, I was literally shocked uh, from the moment, you know, he was uh, married and divorced three different times, mm. but, uh, and, and in all of those marriages, uh, he cheated on his wife uh, prolifically. I mean, I mean, his first wife, who um, is very close, or was very close, unfortunately, she recently passed with Haley's family. Uh, I mean, from the moment, you know, they got married very young, but, but, but within a year or two, um, he was out there, you know, with other women. And, and you know, he's part of, he was a sailor, you know, he was in the Coast Guard. But what Anne Romain found was that so many of his friends, uh, including his brothers, they all had these great families, you know, and, and relationships with their wives. And yet Alex Haley seemed to have gone another route. And it just didn't make much sense to her. And, uh, in any event, so I, you know, he was he was quite the philanderer, and unfortunately, on top of that, he was also an absentee father. Uh, Alex Haley wanted to be a writer more than anything, more than being a father, and more than being a good husband. And it was unfortunately at the expense of his family. Um, he he did not really he was not there to raise his kids. Mm. Um, he had very poor relations uh, with all three of them, which are from two different marriages. Um, and so there was a lot of bitterness. And once Alex Haley became household name, it became very hard for them 
because then reporters start interviewing them. Um, and there's this one article which is uh, that came out uh, about his son uh, a month or two after Roots had aired, um, and it was very sad because you know he himself, Bill Haley, admits that his father uh, really wasn't involved, and and now that he's being proclaimed as kind of this kind of grandfatherly figure, you know, it, it, he almost uh, implied it was somewhat ironic, uh, if not hypocritical. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if it's so much controversial, but it's certainly information that really hadn't been documented before. As I said, I had done quite an amount of research prior to um, listening to this particular interview that had uh, demonstrated how much of a philanderer he was. Mm-hmm. And then it all comes out in this interview I read from his first wife, which uh, is very, very sad. Uh, you know, she seems like a really uh, a, a lovely individual who I'm sure grew up in this era and not in the 1940s and 50s when women had very few opportunities, particularly African-American women. It would have been much different for her. I'm sure she would have divorced him and, and, and be able to create a life for herself. But, you know, 70 years ago, that was not an option. It was a very different climate for women. Thanks for sharing that. Um, would you mind uh, sharing a little bit from the book with us? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is the opening uh, of the of the ebook, and I'm going to start at the top. Sunday, January 23rd, 1977. Neither man uttered a word. Inside his suite at the Pierre Hotel on Fifth Avenue in New York City, actor Warren Beatty looked over at his 55-year-old friend, Alex Haley. The two-hour television premiere of Roots Adapted from Haley's best-selling book had just ended. Credits were rolling. Did you have any idea, any dream of all this? Beatty asked. If I had, I'd have typed a whole lot faster. The writer quipped in his deep, baritone southern drawl. Beatty, who had met Haley for a few years earlier through their film agent, remarked prophetically, Your life will never be the same again. The following evening, at Lincoln Center's Avery Fisher Hall, Kennedy was scheduled to deliver a talk on the same stage on which the New York Philharmonic Orchestra performed. Before the doors opened, Kennedy stepped onto the stage to survey the 3,000-seat auditorium. It wasn't the first time he had spoken at a venue of this size, but this one was certainly the most impressive. Though the audiences and venues changed, the topic never did. Haley's talk was always about his work in progress, a genealogical account spanning more than two centuries. The story began with Haley's great-great-great-grandfather, Kunta Kinte, a West African captured by slave traders. It followed Kunta Kinte's life in bondage and the lives of his descendants. Based on stories Haley had first heard from his grandmother as a youngster on her front porch in Henning, Tennessee, Roots, the saga of an American family, would take 12 years, two editors, and a failed marriage to complete. What inspired Haley to pen a book about his ancestry took hold during his early years as a freelance writer. 
1959, after serving two decades in the U.S. Coast Guard, the latter half spent as the Coast Guard's chief journalist, Haley had relocated to Greenwich Village, a popular destination at the time for struggling artists, musicians, and, of course, writers. Barely able to afford three meals a day, the five-foot-nine, pudgy 38-year-old at first struggled. No longer living on a military salary, nor able to draw from his pension, his first wife, whom he was separated from, and their two children were living off of it. Haley had reached a low point. One evening, he took stock of his entire net worth, he later put it, two cans of sardines and 18 cents. Ever the optimist, Haley was determined to make a name for himself with the aid of an established writer, James Baldwin, a supportive editor, Rear's Digest, Fulton Hausler Jr., and a savvy literary agent, Paul R. Reynolds. The ex-Coast Guardsman honed his skills and eventually went from a second-rate journalist to one of the leading black writers for popular magazines such as Reader's Digest, Playboy, Saturday Evening Post, and Cosmopolitan. Haley's big break came when he co-authored the best-selling 1965 memoir, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Though Haley had little sympathy for Malcolm X's radical ideas, the author recognized how these ideas were shaped by the tragic legacy of American slavery, a story yet to be told properly to the mainstream. What finally convinced Haley to take on this task came during an assignment for Playboy in London. During the turbulent 60s, the men's magazine hired Haley as a freelancer. His job was to interview celebrities for the popular interview feature. Having already interviewed Malcolm X, Miles Davis, and Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., his latest subject was British actress Julie Christie. Visiting Christie outside of London on the set of Darling, Haley had no luck luring the film star away. Instead, he passed the time at the renowned British Museum, where he encountered the 2,000-year-old mesmerized. He discovered that the stones he was hovering over had unlocked the past to ancient Egypt. It was at that moment, Alex Haley recalled, the journey of discovering his roots began. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Thank you so much. I think the writing um, is exquisite all the way through, as I'm sure um, our listeners um, um, have just heard. Can you tell us uh, what you're working on now? Well, as a do-it-yourself author, I am now playing the role of publisher. So I wish I had the luxury of being David McCullough and having a little cabin outside of my home and being able to wander in at any hour of the day and work on my writing whenever <laughs> I felt like it. But the reality is that is not the case for me at this time. So as much as I would do uh, to enjoy work on a new project that I discovered uh, as a result of doing research on Alex Haley, which I will mention in a moment, uh, I am now, I put on my publishing hat and marketing hat, and I am trying to spread the word about this new ebook because when you are a self-published writer, one of the advantages is, is that um, you do it all, which many writers I think, are reluctant to embrace. But I enjoy it because I don't like to wait for people to get to send out press releases or uh, to make contact um, or to make updates to a website or whatever it may be. I enjoy being at the front lines and doing it all myself. On the other hand, it's extremely time-consuming and it's constant. It never stops. It never ends. I have so many ideas, and unfortunately, I just can't get to them as much as I'd like to, whether it's 
sending out uh, more press releases, whether um, it's uh, trying to figure out where to place advertisements and so forth. Uh, you know, making updates on, on my Twitter feed, uh, making changes to my website. I even recently just made a last a final uh, change uh, to my ebook. So it's constant. But uh, while I was in the editing phase and I was kind of in the um, interim between um, going to publish and finishing my book, I did have some time to look into a new topic. And I'm very excited about it because it's an article that I discovered about Alex Haley uh, that I don't think too many uh, people who are even familiar with Alex Haley uh, are, are, uh, are aware of. And that was he wrote an article for a magazine called Sport, which was essentially the precursor to Sports Illustrated. Although Sports Illustrated was around in the early 1960s, it wasn't like it was... In today's era, it wasn't the leading sports magazine. Another magazine was, and that one's called Sports. And Haley wrote an article um, about the the, uh, segregation of blacks in spring training. So although Jackie Robinson integrated baseball in 1947, and other ball clubs besides the Brooklyn Dodgers eventually brought on uh, non-whites onto their ball clubs. Uh, and by the mid-50s, I believe every ball club was integrated during the regular season. During spring training, the teams who went down to Florida, the black ball players and the other non-whites had to stay at different hotels. Um, usually they were, of course, poor accommodations. They couldn't eat at the same restaurants. They couldn't... Um, uh, uh, go outside and, and use the, the hotel pool. They couldn't even um, uh, walk together to the ballpark. It was until they got on the field that they could be together. But as soon as the game was over, they had to retreat to the other side of the tracks. Mm. And again, not much has been written about this. And this is kind of where I come in. Is I like to take, I like to find stories that no one has written about, but are very important and, and serve a bigger purpose to to, as part of the movement, you know, and of course this was all part of the civil rights movement. But there were players um, in that era um, who were getting upset um, and were, were raising hell uh, within the ball clubs. Um, these were, you know, everyone from Elston Howard, who was, uh, of course, uh, the first African-American on the New York Yankees, uh, to Kurt Flood and Bob Gibson and the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, Ernie Banks, who's on, of course, in the Chicago Cubs, Hank Aaron, uh, who uh, I believe it was the Milwaukee Braves at the time. Um, these guys were getting upset, but no one was listening. And this is kind of what my, my book is going to be about. But there was one person who took a stand, and it was this individual who literally transformed the practices uh, overnight. And um, within the following season, every spring training uh, club, or every spring training uh, town that hosted uh, a ball club, all had integrated accommodations for players. And it was a result of this black doctor. 
who is the doctor? <laughs> are you, you going to leave us hanging? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you hanging because um, you want to know something. It is such a good story. I don't, I don't want anyone to take it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I feel almost I've revealed too much. You know, look, as writers, no one wants to talk about. I mean, I was very, very mum about Alex Haley. I just couldn't believe that no one had ever written a biography about it. Uh, of course, I've, I've recently learned that someone uh, is contracted to write a full length biography about Alex but I imagine it won't be out for at least a few years. Uh, but I just couldn't believe that it took so long for someone to figure it out. And I figure God, I've got another uh, great story, and I'm not having anyone scoop me. But, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. but you know, the, the topic has been actually surprisingly not written about that much, which is really interesting because I always find sports is um, – is a great indicator of where social movements are mm-hmm. within this country. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing it right now play out, of course, uh, with gays. You know, uh, look what's happened recently. Uh, an NBA uh, ball player came out uh, who, who happens to be African-American, but he came out as a homosexual. Mm-hmm. And I really think that when players start coming out, whether it's in baseball or basketball or football, all of a sudden, I don't know what it is, but it seems to be okay. You know, so when, so 40, 50 years ago, when integration was um, the controversial issue, uh, it was a lot of the white ball players, including the recently deceased Stan Musial, when they start coming out and showing their support, then all of a sudden the public seems to be, well, if these guys say it's okay, then it's okay. And then all of a sudden, you know, again, this is January 1961. I mean, look what happens. You know, we've got immediately following, we've got, uh, you know, the freedom writers, you know, the following summer. I'm not saying that it's response. There's a direct link between spring training and everything that happens afterwards. But I really believe that it's events like this that serve as a, a small catalyst to kind of a bigger, to, to, to the movement itself. You know, mm-hmm. it all... It all, it, it's all part of the progression. You know, it also helped, too, that it happened at the same time of JFK's inauguration. We've got this new, young, uh, liberal, vivacious president um, who's calling for a new frontier and who's actually taking a stance against segregation. Um, and on top of that, you've got, you know, the Martin Luther King who's starting to get really hot and really popular um, and you've got uh, other instances where the civil rights movement has started to move forward. But, but it, you know, it helps when you have other other things going on like this, the integration. Right? It, just, it just furthers the movement even more. I, I agree. And thank you for that insight. Uh, Adam Hanek, thank you so much for joining us in new books in African-American studies and talking to us about your latest uh, book, Alex Haley's Roots, an author's odyssey. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. May. We've been discussing Alex Haley's Roots and Author's Odyssey with the author Adam Hennick. For more information about Adam Hennick, please visit adamhennick.com. That's A-D-A-M-H-E-N-I-G.com. And to purchase the book, Alex Haley's Roots and Author's Odyssey, please visit amazon.com.